We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage for today. It's Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. I'll give you a second to turn or nowadays swipe there. And um, I'll be reading from the ESV, and it's going to go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Amen. The word of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is a uh, intimidating text, is it not? Uh, It's pretty terrifying. It's infamous because it contains that idea, that quote of the, the blasphemy against the spirit, that one sin that is unpardonable, that one sin where you will not receive forgiveness. And if you've grown up in the church, That is like terrifying. The idea that there is something you can do for which you will not be forgiven. No matter how hard you pray or no matter how hard you plead, that there is something you can do for which there will be no pardon. You see, this idea, it is often quoted but rarely understood. Most of you guys, most of us, we don't know what it means, but we know that, that whatever it is, we want to stay as far away from it as possible. Now, many preachers, when they're working through the gospel of Mark, you see, when I prep these series, I look at other churches, other pastors, and I, I'm curious to see how have they broken down the gospel of Mark into like kind of preaching sections. And what I notice is there are a lot of pastors that get to this passage and they just skip it over. They just bypass. They just you turn like 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 you know Google Maps and just like redirect because it's so difficult. Who wants to preach on a passage that says there's an unforgivable sin? Who wants to hear a message on an unpardonable sin? But I believe, and, and I was kind of like working through uh, and just prepping and praying. Uh, I believe that pastors, we are called to preach the whole counsel of God. That it is not my liberty to kind of duck and and juke out passages that I think are uncomfortable, especially when when Jesus is teaching on it. I can't say, you know what, I just want to talk about like the love of God and 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 what it means to be a friend of Jesus and and what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, those are beautiful, powerful passages. Uh, but when God leads us to this passage, um, Yeah, my conscience, my call wouldn't let me dodge the text. Now, I believe this. I believe that you and I, if we heed the words of Christ, for us there is life. Even in a difficult and seemingly dark passage such as this, if you take Jesus at his word, 
there is life for you. And if you disregard him, there is death, there is danger. And so I'm praying that as we work through this passage, that we would find it beneficial, encouraging, and transformative. As I work through our passage, we're going to see three things. It's always in threes. First, we're going to see the accusation, the accusation. Second, we're going to see the response. And third, we're going to look at the warning. So the accusation comes from the scribes. The response comes from Jesus. And the warning is the main idea for our text, the idea that there is a blasphemy against the spirit. There's a sin that is unpardonable. So the accusation, the response, and the warning. Now, so far in Mark's gospel, we have seen that Jesus is the son of God who's come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That Jesus Christ, in his message and in his preaching, he calls men and women to repentance. Now, here's the thing, though. He has to prove it, okay? You can't just walk into the room and say, I am the son of God. If I did that, you guys shouldn't just follow me. I can't just walk into the room and say, you know what, I'm going to save Israel or I'm going to save you and your family from your sins. I can't just say I am the Messiah. Any just intelligent person is not going to just blindly believe. They're going to say what? Prove it. Prove to me that you are who you say you are. And Jesus understood this. And this is actually why throughout the beginning of Jesus's ministry, We don't begin with Jesus and teaching, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We begin with Jesus doing miracles. See, Mark wants us to see Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus who has authority. And so Mark hits the ground running and there are healings, there are miracles, there are exorcisms. Jesus goes to the synagogue and he amazes the people because he demonstrates an authority an authority that Israel had never seen. And all of these things, all of these miracles are designed not just to impress people. All of these miracles are designed not just to gather following, right, and get popular. Jesus does all of these miracles to show everyone, the Pharisees, the scribes, Israel, the disciples, that he is who he says he is. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus is doing these miracles and his fame is spreading all throughout the land. We hear over and over again that countless people are coming to Jesus. They are looking for healing. They are looking for miracles. They are like moths to a flame, all coming after Jesus. And Jesus is becoming so popular. You see, Jesus hasn't yet ministered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center. It is the capital of Israel. But he's out like in Galilee. And he's ministering in Nazareth. But Jerusalem, news of Jesus has reached Jerusalem. And so what happens? The scribes have heard of Jesus. And in verse 22, we hear that these Jewish leaders come down from Jerusalem to see what all of the fervor was about. They want to know, who is this Jesus? We've heard about him. He claims to be the Messiah. Let's examine and see for ourselves. And they see him. They see him doing miracles. They hear his teaching. And they conclude that he is possessed by Beelzebul. They conclude that he is possessed by the devil. That he is a, he is a prince of Satan. This is the accusation. Now, this isn't Jesus' first confrontation with the leaders of Israel. But it was the most direct and offensive. You see, previously, when the leaders of Israel, whether it's the scribes or the Pharisees, when they kind of saw Jesus, 
They all took like passive aggressive jabs. You guys know what it means to be passive aggressive, right? You're kind of critical of someone. You don't like the way someone's doing something. So rather than say, hey, stop that. That's annoying or that's inappropriate or that's rude. You'll just be like, hey, should you be doing that? Do you think that like they would appreciate that? Or like maybe you should reconsider. And the Pharisees do exactly the same. They don't like the way Jesus' disciples are acting. So they ask, they say, hey, why aren't your disciples fasting like the disciples of John or the disciples of the Pharisees? Shouldn't they be a little bit more righteous and disciplined? All of that is passive aggressive confrontation. Or they see Jesus, and rather than just come at him directly, they kind of talk about the company he keeps. And they talk about him, and they're like, man, what kind of holy man spends time with sinners and tax collectors? How could he eat with them? Or they see Jesus at the synagogue, and they see that he's about to heal a man with a withered hand. And rather than intervene, they're just kind of like waiting. They're just wanting to trap him, wanting to test him. Everything is passive confrontation. But here it gets aggressive. Here it escalates. The Sadducees, they just straight up confront him and they say, you know what? You are, he is possessed by the devil. That's the accusation. Now, why do they have to say this? Why do they have to talk about this? Here's the thing. Here's the reason why. He clearly has power. You see, the scribes, they saw Jesus do an exorcism. Jesus did his first miracle in the gospel of Mark at the synagogue, and it was um, liberating a man from a demon possession. That was his first miracle in the gospel of Mark. And so none of the Jewish leaders can deny his power. None of the Jewish leaders can deny the fact that he can perform exorcism at the command of his word. They've never seen anything like that. They can't deny the miracles, the fact that he's healing men with leprosy, right? That he's caring for the sick. This was undeniable in Jesus's ministry. So what did the leaders have to do? The scribes had to come up with a different story. They had to come up with an explanation that would protect their own authority and undercut Jesus's, okay? That's what they're doing. Guys, have you ever been in the middle of an argument with somebody who is so desperate to win that they just start going crazy, that they start saying absurd, insane, crazy things? They are absolutely illogical, but they just say it with their chest. And they know that like, like it doesn't matter what I say. I just have to win the argument. I have to get my way. Right? You guys are thinking about each other. I think siblings are thinking about their siblings. Wives, husbands are thinking about your spouse. All right? We'll pray for reconciliation later. Right? We all have that one friend or one family member who does this. And this is what the scribes have been reduced to. They have to win the argument. They have to keep their authority. They have to save face. They can't deny the miracles of Jesus. So they have to claim and accuse him of being possessed by the devil. Now, there is something very important we can learn about faith. Okay? If you spend any time in church, you know that faith is very important in the Christian life. We are justified by faith alone. Okay? You go to a retreat, you hear a gospel presentation. How do you and I come to Jesus? How do you and I receive eternal life? It is placing our faith in Jesus. Now, we can learn something very important about the scribes, about the nature of faith. You see, so many people believe that faith comes from seeing. Okay, let me just ask you, where does faith come from? A lot of people think that faith comes from proof, that faith comes from seeing. And so we tell ourselves that if we could just see a miracle, 
We tell ourselves, if we could just experience a miracle, then I would surely believe in God, okay? I did that in high school. I was like on the fence about believing in Jesus. And I just read like the story of Moses and the burning bush. And this was my prayer. I kid you not. I am not, I'm like house of the Lord. I'm not lying. I was like, Lord, do what you did with Moses on my toilet, for my toilet. Let it just be burning up like a burning toilet, but don't burn the house down. And then I will know you are God. And then I will follow you. I prayed it dead serious. Cause I was like, God, you can do anything. You can do it. Never happened. Never happened. Pray, you know, praise God. My parents would have like been freaking out. But we do this. We tell ourselves if we would just be able to see or experience a miracle, we would surely believe. Or, or if you've grown up in the church and you're, you know, you're a Christian, but you're just not that hardcore. You're not like super Christian. You're just like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You tell yourself this. But if you could see a miracle, if you could witness a miracle, then I would believe more, right? You would be that much more devoted. Then you will really go on missions. Then you'll go into ministry. Then you'll evangelize. Then you'll sacrifice. Then you will truly take up your cross and follow him. But until you see something, you don't want to get too radical. So we like hedge and we wait and we negotiate with God. Is, it, is that you? Are you waiting on God to prove himself to you? before you place all of your faith, not just some of your faith, but all of your faith in him. Friend, I want to tell you this. The scriptures are full of people who saw and experienced miracles and never believed. Okay, and you're looking at one group, the scribes. They came down from Jerusalem and they want to examine Jesus and they see the exorcisms. They see the miracles. They see the healings. They hear him teach like nobody has ever taught before. And yet they didn't believe. They saw and experienced everything you and I tell ourselves, that's what I need to become a truly radical Christian. If God would just give me that, then I will. Guys, there's a story in the gospels where Jesus heals 10 lepers. 10 lepers of this disease that the Israelites called, you are as good as dead. You are the walking dead if you get leprosy. He cleansed them. He purified them in a moment. All 10 of them show themselves to the priest so that they can like, be officially cleansed, officially declared clean. Only one comes back. Only one comes back to thank Jesus. Only one comes back to follow Jesus. And Jesus asks this, we're not all 10 cleansed. We're not all 10 healed. And the answer is yes. Nine people, nine of those lepers, they got what they were looking for. They had their fill. They experienced the miracle. They did not follow. They did not have faith. See, you can learn something about faith. You learn something about yourself and your relationship and the things that we're saying. We're saying, God, if only, then I will believe. You and I, too often, we're waiting on God to prove himself to us. So why didn't, the, why didn't the scribes believe? They saw it all. They witnessed it all. The reason why is because of the hardness of their heart. 
The reason why is because of their pride. You see, they weren't seeking a savior. They were only seeking to preserve their own authority, preserve their own religious system, preserve their own power. And so as they saw the real Jesus, the real savior of Israel, the real Messiah, it didn't fit with them. Jesus wasn't saying what they wanted him to say. Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. So they rejected him. They accused him of being a son of Satan. You see, if faith was just an automatic consequence of seeing miracles, the scribes and Pharisees, they all would have believed. But genuine faith begins with a humble heart, a humble heart that can see Jesus for who he truly is. Not veiled, not filtered according to your own standards, not filtered according to your own system, not not a Jesus that has to prove himself to you. No. Genuine faith begins with a humble heart. Genuine faith begins with you acknowledging your need for a savior. Genuine faith understands that you are a sinner, that God is holy, and your only hope of salvation is a reconciler, it's a redeemer, it's a mediator, and that's in Jesus. You see, you and I, we all tell ourselves, man, God, I I need to see something. We're waiting on God to prove himself to us. Well, Jesus has done that. He has proved himself to be your savior through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. That's how he has done that. And if you are demanding more from him, you will never find what you are looking for. Just think about that. Jesus Christ has proven himself to you by living a perfect life, a sinless life, the life that you and I were supposed to live. And he died on the cross, that death that he didn't deserve, that death that you and I deserved. And then he rose again on the third day, defeating Satan, defeating sin, defeating death, all, not because he needed it, but because you and I did. That is the extent of his love. That is the depth of his power. And you and I have the audacity to say that's not enough. Jesus, what I really need from you is a job. Jesus, what I really need from you is a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse. Jesus, what I really need from you is a child. And we tell ourselves that God, that is how you will prove your love to me. And we utterly reject the person and work of Jesus. And if you keep looking for a savior with your own selfish, self-centered criteria, you will never find him in the scriptures. You will never find him in Jesus. He will not bow down. He will not bow down to those criteria. We're looking for the wrong things in the wrong places. We are just like the scribes. Don't we do that? We look at the scribes, we're like, oh my God, you guys are so dumb. That's not the son of Satan, that's the son of God. Why don't you guys believe? And then we come up with the very same excuses. Jesus, you're not giving me what I want in my time, in my way. Jesus, you're not proving yourself to me. I can't follow you all in yet. But maybe if you did, give me something better, I would. That's the song of the scribes. The accusation has been made. Jesus is not the son of God, according to the scribes. Instead, he's the son of the devil. And that's the source of his power. You see, they said, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Once again, We see him casting out demons. That power is not coming from God. They say it's coming from Satan. Immediately, we see Jesus' response. 
Let's look again at verse 23. He called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Kind of sounds like that Under Armour commercial, right? Anyways, um, and if Satan has ri risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, before we talk about like the house and the strong man and the kingdom and the binding, I want us to notice something about Jesus' response. And it's actually his kindness and his patience. What does Mark say happens in the beginning of verse 23? Right after the scribes have accused the son of God as being the son of Satan, Jesus calls the scribes to him. He wants to draw near to them. He wants to reason with them. You see, he didn't have to. He could have responded with anger. He could have responded with rage and rebuke. He could have embarrassed them. He could have shamed them and blasted them. They've just accused him of being demon-possessed. And what does Jesus do? He draws them near. He says, come, come closer. Let me tell you who I really am. Let me show you who I really am. Do you guys see that? That is the patience of our Savior. That is the heart and character of Christ. So gentle, so loving, so wondrous. And then he proceeds to tell them two parables. And the parables are simple. He's simply saying, guys, you think I'm the son of Satan, but that's absurd. It makes no sense. It makes no sense for Jesus to expose and cast out demons if he was possessed by Satan. You see, what is Satan trying to do? He's been working to send his demons to oppress and possess the people of Israel. He wants to build up strongholds of sin and idolatry and rebellion in Israel. That is his work. He is the deceiver, right? He wants to deceive the children of Israel away from God. What has Jesus been doing this whole time? He's undoing the work of Satan, okay? He's undoing the work of Satan. He's bringing Israel to repent of their sins. He's leading them to forfeit their idols. He's bringing physical, spiritual healing. He's literally casting out demons from people. So his argument is simply this. If Satan is really behind this, then everything is counterproductive, Like. Right? It doesn't make sense. Satan is going to build a stronghold here. Jesus is going to blow that up. Satan's going to send a demon to possess this person. Jesus is going to show up and cast that person out. If that's all the work of Satan, then he's destroying his own kingdom. It's self-refuting. Simple point. In the second parable, Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. I'm going to confess something to you guys. I didn't understand this for the longest time. You know, you're like this, we all think, oh, the strong man must be Jesus, right? Or the strong man must be God. And then you kind of start, you're like binding and plundering. And it sounds like robbing. And what is going on? Uh, let me unpack the, the points of this parable. You know who the strong man is? He's Satan. The strong man in this parable is Satan. And the afflicted children of Israel, they are his possessions, his treasures, all of the strongholds that Satan has built up, 
all of those pockets of darkness and sin and idolatry, that is all part of Satan's kingdom, his goods and his treasures. And Jesus is now coming into the scene. And he is the one who is binding the strong man to plunder the kingdom of Satan and take everything back. Does that make sense? And Jesus' point is this, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, religious leaders of Israel, you guys can't do that. Why? Because you're not stronger than Satan. If anybody is going to go into somebody's house and the homeowner is a strong man, whether it be a police officer or some kind of agent or soldier, you got to get through the soldier. You got to get through the owner, the strong man first, to then get to the treasures. And Jesus' point is you guys haven't been able to do that. You guys can't defeat Satan on your own, but I can. You see, Jesus wasn't just telling us that he's not satanic. He's also telling us that he is mightier than the devil. He is stronger than Satan. And as he binds Satan, he plunders the kingdom of Satan. So he takes back the children of Israel. He liberates the children of Israel. He renews and redeems the children of Israel. You see, we may not be able to defeat Satan, but Jesus can. That's what he's telling us today that he has come to destroy the works of the devil. And this is such a mighty promise. And it's such a source of hope for you and I, because guys, um, Satan is not just working. He was not just working in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Here's the reality. He's working in our world today. He's at work in our cities and in our community, in our relationship. He's at work in our families trying to break families up, cause there to be abuse and dysfunction, addictions, when we see injustice and violence in our communities all over the news, that's not just a result of bad human decisions. Yes, those are connected as well. It's not just a result of poor ethics. It is the work of Satan who wants to keep our nation divided who keeps us in bigotry and prejudice and hatred and fear. When we hear of human trafficking and sex slavery, that is a stronghold of Satan. And the second deception that we see that we need to be far from is the idea that we are the solution. You see, that's what we want to believe. We want to believe that, man, maybe technology will save us. Or maybe more organization, a better government, a better police force will save us. Maybe education will save us. Man, if we could just educate people and teach people better ethics and better morals, then people will stop killing each other. Friends, that is naive to believe that humans are the solution to bind the strong man and reclaim the children and kingdom of God. You know why? Because for thousands and thousands of years, Mankind, humankind, we've been lying to one another. Ever since the fall, we've oppressed one another. We've taken advantage of one another. We have been perverse. We have been idolaters. It's a human problem. And it's a sin problem. And so this is what we need to do. When Jesus says he is the one that binds the strong man. When Jesus says he is the one who plunders the kingdom of Satan, we need to take him at his word and recognize that Jesus is the hope of the world. It's not our government. It's not technology. It's not mankind. Not a better version of mankind. 
That is not our Savior. Jesus is. Now, there's two responses to this, okay? If you are cynical, and if this is just a doctrine to you, okay, it makes you indifferent. You're gonna say, oh my gosh, Jesus is the hope. He's the only one who can fix this. So you don't care. You don't care about injustice. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about the weak. You don't care about sin. You just live your own life and you realize Jesus is the one that's gonna fix it. It's like making a mess and waiting for the maid to come, okay? That means you don't really understand the gospel. That means you don't really understand Jesus and the hope he offers not only you, but all of the people in bondage, all of the people in pain, all of the people in sin. Because when you truly understand the hope that Jesus brings, it doesn't make you cynical, it makes you missional. Think about that. When you understand the gospel, you don't become cynical at the problems of the world. You become missional because you know that Jesus is the only hope, that what people radically need is not more technology, more wealth, and more education, even though those things would be nice. The real cure, the real hope, the real redemption is in Jesus, who's able to bind the strong man and plunder his household. Amen? Finally, we have the warning. We have the accusation, we have the response, and the warning. And it flows from the accusation that scribes made, that the scribes made against Jesus. In verses 28 to 30, Jesus warns us of the unpardonable sin. In verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. First, as we unpack the unpardonable sin, that's like the title of the sermon. You're like, Pastor Mike, you've been talking for 30 minutes and you're finally getting here. All right, here we go. Uh, let me explain what it is first by telling us what it's not, okay? Addition by subtraction. First, it's not just blasphemy or false doctrine, okay? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Unpardonable sin is not just false teaching and it's not just cursing God and cursing Jesus and cursing the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus says it clearly. Verse 28, all sins will be forgiven, including whatever blasphemies they utter. This means that false teachers and heretics can be brought to repentance. Okay, So very, very important. In 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to Timothy and he refers to himself as a blasphemer, right? The Apostle Paul was somebody who persecuted the church. The Apostle Paul was somebody who went against Jesus, against the gospel, against the Christians. And, G and Paul was like, I was a blasphemer, but I received mercy through the cross. Second, we see that the, the unpardonable sin is not just heinous sin, not just sin like murder or sexual sin or poor ethical conduct. You see, there's so many times we're like, oh my gosh, that guy was a serial killer, unpardonable sin. Hitler must be unpardonable sin, right? And we think, oh my God, like people who are adulterous and taking advantage of people of the opposite sex or slave owners, they all must all be unpardonable because of their poor ethical conduct. Many times, you and I, we, we do something so terrible. We can do something so repeatedly that we tell ourselves we are beyond redemption. Have you ever been there? Looked at your own sinfulness. Look at your own addictions and you just say, God, how could you ever forgive me? 
I am unpardonable. You feel that about yourself. You're unredeemable. I am too dirty, too broken, and too lost. But Jesus reminds us that his grace is mightier than our sin. Just look at the life of King David. He's guilty of it all. Murder, adultery, child out of wedlock, lying. But you know what happened to King David? He didn't get right with God because he started doing all the right things and earn his own righteousness and pay off his sin and pay off his debt. No, David was washed clean, white as snow, because he looked forward in faith to Jesus Christ. He looked forward to a God who was gracious, a God who knew, he knew could forgive him by the blood of the Messiah that would come. Lastly, what is this unpardonable sin? It is not suicide. So it's not just blasphemy and false doctrine. It's not just heinous, terrible, ethical sin. And lastly, it's not suicide. One of the most unfortunate urban legends about Christianity and heaven and hell is that if you commit suicide, that you automatically go to hell. I heard this and I like, as a kid, I was like, oh my God, that makes sense. Because people would say, oh man, if... If you don't even want the life that God gives you, why should you be able to receive the eternal life after death? And so I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And so people buy into that. They buy into this myth that if you commit suicide, it is unpardonable sin. You automatically go to hell. I want to say this. Find that in the scriptures. What verse? What chapter? What book? There isn't a single verse in scripture that says that suicide is an unpardonable sin automatically damning you to hell. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? We've seen what it's not. Many people reduce it simply to rejecting the gospel. Now, it is true that if you reject the gospel, you will go to hell without forgiveness. Okay, I'm saying that. I'm not, I don't say that out of hatred. I say that out of biblical truth. If you reject the gospel, you will not receive forgiveness from God. And you will go to hell. But that is not Jesus' point here. You see, Jesus has a specific sin in mind when he's referring to blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And this is what it is. It is deliberate rejection of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is to deliberately reject the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a rejection of the work of the Spirit in Jesus' life, and it is a rejection of the work of the Spirit in your life. Okay? You see, a lot of times when you think of the work of the Holy Spirit, we only think of it like while we are worshiping, when the lights are down and we're singing and we're praying and we just saying, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come move this place and fill the atmosphere. And so we're like, you know, anyways, um, <laughs> the, praise sound sound, the praise song sounds so weird when you like talk it. Anyways, um, we only think of the Holy Spirit like in that context. Did you guys know the Holy Spirit was actively working in the life of Jesus? In Jesus' earthly life and ministry, do you know what it consisted of? Two things. Fully obeying, uh, obeying the Father, okay? His earthly life and ministry, it wasn't his own. He didn't do whatever he wanted to do. He did the will of the Father. But second, he was fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
You see, Jesus did not minister out of his own divinity. He didn't resist sin simply because he was God, okay? It wasn't easy for him to resist the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. A lot of times we think that. We're like, man, Jesus, that must have been easy. Fasting 40 days, 40 nights, you're God. You're not even hungry. Why does that even matter to you? It wasn't easy for Jesus to go to the cross and die on the cross. But I had a friend. I had a friend in high school. We were debating. And he was like, what is the point of Jesus dying on the cross? He's God. He's eternal. God can't die. So just because Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, that meant nothing to him. You know what Paul writes in Philippians? Paul teaches us about the incarnation of Jesus. And when Jesus became a man, he emptied himself of those divine privileges. The idea of of God never experiencing hunger. Yeah, that's, that's not, God the Father never experiences hunger. The idea that, that the Holy Spirit cannot experience physical pain, yeah, because the Holy Spirit is a spirit. Those divine privileges, Jesus emptied himself out of. And he took on flesh. And he became a man so he could empathize with us. He could know us in our weakness. He could truly take our place. And his entire life consisted of two things, obeying the Father and being filled by the Spirit. That's how he did his miracles. Not because he just had divine power just flowing from his fingertips like a superpower, like an Avenger or a mutant. That wasn't Jesus. How did he heal? By the power of the Spirit. How did he cast out demons? By the power of the Spirit. But here, the scribes were attributing the work of the Spirit, not to the work of God, but to the work of the devil. And they witnessed the work of the Spirit and ministry of the Son, and they rejected it. And Jesus was saying, guys, if you don't repent, this is going to be a blasphemy for which there is no forgiveness. He says, if you keep blaspheming against the work of the Spirit in my life. This will be an unpardonable sin for you. And in our lives, the Spirit is working to do what? Like to give you the chills? To give you the feels during worship? I'm going to tell you, it's so much more. The Holy Spirit is working, working to show you the Son. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth and He shines the light of God's word and his gospel into our hearts that are darkened, our minds that are lost and numb. And he illuminates us so that we can know and trust in the gospel. By the Spirit and his work, we can discern truth from error, not because you and I are intelligent, not because we are so much wiser than other people. Why? How did you and I come to realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? It is because of the Spirit. And he's working in you. It is by the leading of the Holy Spirit that you and I acknowledge our sin. We are broken over our sin. We are contrite over our sin. We confess our sins and place our faith in Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit aims to do. He purposes to do in our lives. Here's the question. If you resist and if you reject, is that not unpardonable? You see, there are many today who are resisting and rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this warning, guys, this warning, 
It is not for people who have never heard about Jesus, right? It's not for those like indigenous people where they've never heard the gospel. They don't have a missionary. They don't have a Bible. This is not what Jesus is not talking to them. This warning is for people who have heard the truth, people who have seen the light, but exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Let me say that again. The warning of sin that is unpardonable, the warning of sin that is unforgiven, it is not just for lost unbelievers that have never heard the gospel. It is for people who have heard the gospel, people who have seen the light, and you reject it. You walked away. You exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is what the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 was talking about. When he talks about apostasy and those who have fallen away, this is what is written. For it is impossible, just read that word, impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You see, Hebrews in this chapter The author of Hebrews, he's not talking about Christians losing their salvation. We cannot. Paul is clear in Romans. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. That's absolutely true. So Christians can't lose their salvation. Who are they talking about then? Who is the author of Hebrews talking about? He's talking about people who have been exposed. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. Tasted the goodness of the word of God, but... You have rejected it. You've turned away. And for those types of people, Jesus says it is impossible. It is impossible to restore. This is why Jesus issues such a grave warning. If you and I, or if somebody you care about, somebody you know, somebody you love, if we willingly, knowingly, repeatedly reject the work and witness of God, God will turn his face away from us. God will turn his face away from us. He will leave us to our own sinful ways. He will withdraw his presence from us. Just think about this. Over and over again, the spirit is saying, I want to show you Jesus. I want to show you your sin. I want to lead you to the path of life and righteousness. And over and over again, you say, no, no, no. I want to live my own life. I want to craft my own ways. I will not bow down to God. I'm going to bow down to the idol of money, of power, of comfort, of sex. And at some point, God is going to say, fine, have your way. Do what you want to do. Do what you want to do. And here's the thing. If God, the Holy Spirit, then refuses to work in your life, then you have no hope of repentance. Your redemption is impossible. You guys see that? The only reason why we repent is because the Holy Spirit leads us to. The only reason why we believe and see Jesus as a true person rather than a lunatic or just a name or an idea or a religious figure, the only reason we see Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world is because the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. And if we keep running from him and keep rejecting him and keep resisting him, at some point, the Holy Spirit is going to say, fine, I'm going to stop. 
Stop knocking on, on the door of your heart. I'm gonna stop working on you. Stop illuminating uh, your mind and your heart. You can live your own life. And if the Holy Spirit turns away from you, it is impossible for you to repent. That's why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unpardonable sin. Because apart from the Spirit, we cannot come to faith. We cannot be redeemed. John Piper, he tells a story of a message that his father gave as an evangelist when he was a young boy. And it's a story he never forgot. His father tells this. There was once a buzzard flying over a river and it was winter. And this buzzard saw a carcass lying on a piece of ice that was floating down the river. And so out of hunger, that buzzer landed on that piece of ice and he began to eat the carcass. Now the buzzard knew he was in danger because he could hear just down the way that there was a waterfall. But it didn't bother the buzzard because he knew. He knew that he had these magnificent and powerful wings and he assumed that anytime he wants, he can just soar off back to the safety of the sky. So this buzzer sitting on this block of ice just keeps eating that carcass on and on and on. And just as that iceberg is about to go down the waterfall, the buzzard spreads his wings, ready to fly according to its own will and timing, but he can't because his claws are frozen in the ice. And as the ice descends down into the waterfall, the buzzard goes down with it perishing in this life and the life to come. Why do I share that story? Because there are some of you here who are toying with sin on and on and on. And you think, I will quit when I want to. I will stop whenever I really need to. But for now, I'm going to toy with that sin on and on. Do you know how much danger you are in? Do you know how costly it is for you to resist the Holy Spirit and refuse to repent? How costly it is for you to realize whether it is in worship as we confess our sins or once a month when we take communion, those moments when you sense God piercing your heart, convicting you of your sin. How costly it is for you to ignore God and the work of the Spirit. Do you see the pride in your heart that has been deceiving you? Telling you, you know what? You can quit whenever you want. You negotiating with God, saying, you know what, God? I will quit once I get married. Or man, once I, once I have kids, then I know that that's when I really need to take my faith and my life seriously because I realize it's not just for me, it's for my kids. But until then, I'm gonna live my own way. Or whatever type of negotiating language you lay before God to justify yourself going on and on in sin. You know there's danger, but you say just, I can keep doing it. Today, tonight, this week, brothers and sisters, has the Spirit of God shown you your sin? What are you thinking about right now? Has he convicted you to repent, to turn away and go to Christ? My next question is this, what then are you waiting for? Do not delay. Don't push it off. 
till next week, next month, next year. The reality is this. None of us is promised another day. None of us is promised another opportunity to come to Christ. Think about that. Think about the last time you experienced the unction of the Holy Spirit. The last time you felt God was speaking to you, moving in your heart, convicting you, allowing you to see the vanity of your ways, the vanity of your sins, the vanity of the the world. And what did you do? Did you say, you know what? I'll wait for this to happen next time. At the next service, the next retreat, the next event. Friends, the reality is this. You are not guaranteed another visit from the Holy Spirit, another movement of God. Who are you and I to feel entitled to that whenever we would like it, according to our schedule and convenience? Brother and sister, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the good news is this. The good news is this. Jesus declares, truly I say to you, all your sins will be forgiven. All your sins will be forgiven. That's what he says. Right before he talks about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, Jesus makes this promise. Truly, I say to you, and did you know, church, that this is the only, he is the only one in the entire New Testament who uses that phrase. Truly, I say to you. Why? Because he is the only one that makes promises. He is the only one who is God incarnate. He is the only one who is the word of God, who has the authority to make those kinds of promises that all of our sins will be paid for. All of our sins will be atoned for, that we can be forgiven. However crimson, however terrible they might be, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. His promises are sure. And so this is the reality today that although our Lord's warning, it is dreadful, his promise is delightful. See, that warning was a warning to keep us from everlasting, eternal death. But he didn't just leave it there. He gave us a promise. He gave us assurance that if we repent and place our faith in him, truly all our sins will be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, that's Jesus' promise to you. Would you take him at his word? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be the demonstration of your love for us. God, we thank you that you give us such patience and kindness that though we sin repeatedly over and over again, though we take your grace for granted, Lord, you are a God who doesn't give up on us and you keep pursuing us. We thank you that we have even right now in this moment, the work of your Holy Spirit to convict our hearts of our sin and to lead us faith and trust in Jesus. 
Father, I pray for every brother and sister here right now that we would not resist your Holy Spirit, but rather we would say to you, oh God, yes and amen, your will be done in my life. Lord, would you speak? And would our hearts be soft? Would we be clay in your hands? Would you be the great potter? We are yours.